Right, welcome back everyone. This is the Faultline podcast. We're going to shake things up and start naming the podcasts after the issue numbers. So this is issue number 858. So yes, that is how old Faultline is. And uh, joined today by our editor, Tommy Flanagan. Hello. And my colleague, Rafi Cohen, who helps me out with the Rethink TV stuff. Hello. So I know on the Rethink TV side of things, it's been pretty flat out. But Tommy, how has Faultline been this week? Yeah, it's been a funny old week, fellas. Um, I actually got an email from a reader this week thanking us for our IBC coverage, basically saying it saved them a whole lot of time and effort from sifting through the various sessions because Faultline did all the cherry picking for them. So it's always nice to get a bit of feedback, particularly for something as painstaking as virtual IBC was. Um, So there was a late influx of announcements this week that kind of went some way, but not really, to softening the blow from... um, virtual IBC, including um, some cool stuff from Orange, but it's actually elsewhere in France where we focus this week, uh, looking at Anivia, which as of about six weeks ago announced it's being taken over by Atem, as I think we covered in a previous um, podcast. But what's cool about this is that normally when a vendor in the fault line gets acquired, that's normally game over, never to be seen again until months later when a bunch of people might get axed. But in this case, we've managed to do interviews with both sides of the deal. And uh, there probably isn't a publication outside of France that's been given as much exclusive access to this deal as us, which is pretty cool. So, And there's a lot to this deal. So um, on paper, it looks like straight-up consolidation between two encoding vendors. And while they both have encoding assets, they're complementary components of the encoding ecosystem. So Anivia's Genova encoders are... Uh, focused on hardware acceleration for OTT-only environments, while Atem's Titan is software-only and can handle any network um, delivery. Um, um, what Genova brings to the party is its high-density encoding, which throws in a lot of GPUs at multiple feeds to bring down price per channel and power consumption. But this is throwing up a lot of questions about what's going to happen to the two product lines, and Damien Lucas, uh, Anivia CTO, told me there hasn't really been any decision there yet, although if he's got his engineering cap on, it tells him that convergence um, is inevitable, although the marketing department are keen to keep things quite separate for obvious reasons. Um, But the other two important parts are the CDN assets that Anivia brings and also personalised TV, which is a top priority for uh, Atem as its new parent company. But... Uh, Anivia doesn't actually do the personalization algorithm part of it. It, it takes the delivery um, data plane where it's most active and puts this data towards splicing personalized video into OTT channels for dynamic ad insertion. And one of the most surprising takeaways from the conversation this week is that uh, personalized video is the largest area of R&D for Anivia, um, although that might be a post-acquisition change rather than pre. But... Um, it's an important important to note that all of this couldn't really be possible without the cloud, and that's where things are going, as uh, other podcasts um, have, have suggested. So taking the idea of elasticity and microservices, which are important for co-locating resources on the same node, for things like improving the efficiency of a CDN capacity and eventually migrating 100% of resources to the cloud, which Anivia wants to do eventually um, after... Uh, the the takeover completes, which is supposed to complete by the end of this month, by the way. Um, but he he couldn't give me a time frame for when 
uh, merged an EVO attempt wants to, to go 100% cloud. But ultimately, the end goal here is interoperability between different vendor software stacks, and allowing customers to pick and choose and basically avoiding vendor lock-in situations. Uh, you might remember the, the burrito analogy. Um, although Damien, he did admit that a lot of operators not really ready for this level of Kubernetes and, and having we kind of touched on on standards um, that would also help level the playing field but that's a bit of a dirty word in this in this sense and that's a story for another day and there's a lot more juicy info in the, in the full story so check that out and that was really the flavor of most of this week's issue it's was really heavy on the microservices and cloud native side stuff and I'm feeling a bit frazzled after all of that so that's about it yeah, I, I think this could get quite messy when it comes to going full cloud. I think there's going to be a lot of um, very rich IT consultants out there. <laughs> for sure. All right, so Rafi, this week you were looking at the penny drops for Wide Orbit as it finally enters OTT with a Margie. So what was going on for this story? Uh, yeah, so got a press release a couple of weeks ago from um, Wide Orbit. It's a big ad tech company. They usually work in linear and they, they've got a big audio segment as well. And it was it looked like a fairly run of the mill press release. It was just saying that they were working with Amagi on uh, on some kind of new server side ad insertion thing. And then as I kind of only really realised as I as I got talking to him, John Morris, who is VP of Digital, that this is the first project they've ever done with OT with OTT, which is kind of remarkable, really. They're an absolutely massive company. They have I think like thirty eight billion dollars in transactional ad revenue every year across linear and audio and never once <laughs> have they ever done anything to do with OTT and it's quite funny because like last week I remember Tommy complaining about how he was sick of seeing things at IBC uh, painting the scene of how cord cutting is taking place and how the viewers are ever moving uh, more towards OTT and I don't know maybe Wide Orbit heard that podcast and they're like oh he's onto something there maybe something's going on with OTT so yeah this is this is their first ever endeavor um they're working with Amagi, who's doing all the video workflows. They're doing the encoding, transcoding, distribution, um, and they're kind of uh, they're sig they're, with their fingerprint technology. They're signaling to Wide Orbit kind of the length of an ad space, what's required there, what kind of ad content, and then Wide Orbit uh, using their programmatic platform uh, to serve ads there essentially. Um, and the odd thing about this is that even though it kind of promises broadcast TV quality ads, the the exchange that all this content is coming from, all the programmatic content, is coming from the digital exchange, which is what they share with all the audio content. So rather than actually coming from the same exchange where all the TV uh, advertising content is coming from, it will be on the, the same marketplace as all their audio and podcast ads. Um, but yeah, John Morris seems pretty certain that this was going to be a big new era for the company. It's still pretty early days. They've only got one um, demo, uh, supplier partner for ad content, which is Magnite, which is the resulting company from the Telaria and Rubicon merger. But he said there are plenty more in the pipeline. Um, and yeah, it's just it's, it's strange that a company so big, so big have only just decided to, to go into OTT. I also asked him a bit about... Um, podcasting and what he thinks about the hysteria there because uh, he's got a big history in uh, audio and he said obviously it's a very exciting time but if you actually look at the money Avod is clearly where most of the money is moving he was like you know best case scenario we're going to reach 1 billion in ad, ad revenues for podcasts in the next year whereas Avod is going to be closer to the 50 60 billion dollar mark so it was quite refreshing to to hear someone who is actually passionate about audio not you know 
painting some kind of idyllic portrait of something that's never going to happen. You know, he said it's an, ex- it's an exciting time for the format, but we've got to stay cool-headed. And yeah, it seems like Wide Orbit have done that. They're, you know, it's very uh, delayed, but they're being tactical and going where the money is. So yeah, a, 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 an odd story, and it wasn't really what it was initially painted out to be. But yeah, it's a, a first for the company. Yeah, it's always nice um, making a discovery like that along the way. Uh, it, it is better than just kind of trying to trying to hash out something really quite boring. But no, yeah, weird that they've got this far in and uh, have so little sort of experience with, with OTT. But um, sort of on that point, um, my contribution this week was uh, something I've been teasing the past couple of uh, episodes. It was Mulan finally launching uh, in China and, and over on Disney+. And this ended up being a bit of a strange article um, because initially I was expecting uh, Mulan to have a gangbusters opening, uh, but it only managed about $23 million on opening weekend in China, and that puts it at about $40 million globally. And it spent 200 uh, There are some rumors that it's maybe $290 million on, on this film, and it's made a lot of uh, editorial decisions to make it more successful in china we think and it doesn't seem to have paid off and the the second element here was well this is going to be the first big blockbuster that's come out purely on on svod uh in you know the u.s basically and what impact is this going to have on consumer habits and of course uh the covid19 lockdown has thrown everything up in the air and i think disney's been put between a rock and a hard place I think if they wanted to launch uh, the first experiment here, I don't think it would have been Mulan. I think they would have preferred something like one of the Avengers uh, movies, but but that's obviously not the case. So the question here is, uh, what what data does Disney have, and is it going to show that this has been a great success? Um, we suspect uh, that there's going to be a lot of unhappy consumers, but the, the sort of balance was that, just for comparison... Um, we you might remember Universal's Trolls World Tour, uh, you know, kids film released purely through digital rentals that managed to do a hundred million dollars, uh, and its prequel, the the previous instalment managed one hundred and fifty three million, and that was in the box offices. But of course, it's got to pay out a cut to the theaters and whatnot. So its take home was obviously way less than that. So a hundred million dollars purely through digital rental for Trolls. Uh, sounds quite good, and I'm very interested to hear uh, what Disney has actually managed to to put forward, because I suspect it, it might might not even be there. Um, then there were a few more wrinkles that that we sort of unearthed the uh, Rotten Tomatoes ratings, which are actually quite important when it comes to funding decisions. The critics seem to like it, but the audiences don't like it. So if 51% of audiences only give it a, you know, an approved rating, that doesn't really bode well for this concept of SVOD as a primary delivery mechanism or like a replacement for the movie theatres. And yeah, it's it's just it's a bit awkward. And I mean, we'd love to hear from Disney, but I don't think they're gonna gonna be publishing those numbers anytime soon. So yeah, with the sort of thesis for this article is has has Mulan just sort of set us back? Um, has it sort of collectively soured a lot of consumers on on this idea? You know, if you paid thirty dollars for a crap film and you never even left the house for the privilege of it, and it will be available in three months, it is a bit difficult to kind of see the the value there. So yeah, a bit of a rant. Um, I'm going to be following up on that. Hopefully, I'll, I'll try and find out a bit more uh, detail. Um, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't get your hopes up on Disney 
publishing them. So uh, with that, we'll move on to the worth noting section, carrying on the sort of tradition for now. Rafi, what was going on five years ago? Uh, yeah, sure. Five years ago, Altus had just uh, doubled the size of their US operations. They had over 5 million homes uh, with cable and Wi-Fi, and that's because they just acquired New York operator Cablevision Systems for $17.7 billion. Uh, this was kind of... They, Altus were being very active in 2015. In May, they'd acquired Suddenlink for $9.1 billion, uh, and when they did that, they'd become the fourth biggest cable operator in the US. Uh, and then, yeah, with, with this new acquisition, they basically doubled the size of their footprint. Uh, Cablevision, which was the, the one they did five years ago this week, was kind of more strategic, though, as it placed Altus in direct op opposition to Verizon in New York, and it brought the company dangerously close to a disruptive position. It kind of looked like their plan was to take what it had learned uh, in France, which was a severely competitive market with over 20 million Wi-Fi hotspots, and transfer this experience to the US market, bringing Wi-Fi to the fore of the business. But many uh, commentators and some of the shareholders felt that Altis was overstretching itself because following the acquisition, its market value was just under $28 billion, which was well below its value when it acquired Suddenlink in May of that year. And uh, clearly things didn't go too well because today, uh, at the time of writing Faultline, Altis was valued at just $16 billion. Yep, that looks a bit painful. <laughs> so, Tommy, what's your highlight from Worth Noting this week? Yeah, well, I would do something different bit different in this week's worth noting which is do a plug for an awards ceremony but normally Faultline hates awards and this is the only award ceremony of the of the calendar year that we actually care about which is the illustrious CSI awards taking place tomorrow uh, well uh, Friday the 18th whenever this is published um, uh, hosted by our friend Goran uh, and legendary journalist at, at CSI um, and normally one of us would be judging or presenting an award or just sat in the audience drinking free champagne and hurling uh, abuse at Cisco from the audience or people like that, which I will still be doing from my desk at uh, four o'clock tomorrow um, UK time. But while I'm here on the topic of the CSI awards and the topic of beef with IBC, I just wanted to say that this didn't start uh, this year in the virtual format. This, this beef started last year when the CSI Awards was kicked out of its normal home in the auditorium at the Amsterdam Rye um, and forced to go down to a, a cosy bar down the road, which was fine, but that meant a significantly uh, smaller audience simply because IBC organisers decided that this town wasn't big enough for two awards ceremonies anymore. But the, the IBC Awards is just it's just crap in comparison to CSI Awards. So yeah, tune in tomorrow and support the, the CSI Awards. And no, we're not getting paid for this, by the way. No, please, please join us in hurling abuse at the big boys. Um, it is quite fun. Uh, and then I'm just going to draw your attention to the fact that Comcast CEO has said that they have 15 million Peacock users. And I'm very interested to know how many of them are actually paying and how many of them got automatically punted onto a, a Peacock account. Uh, I think they're really trying to hide the death of their uh, MVPD business there. Um, so, yeah, right. That was it for the 858th edition of Faultline. Tommy, what's coming up in the 859th edition of Faultline? Yeah, so there'll be no podcast next week as Alex is on holiday, but the Faultline show itself will go on. Um, so we've got some cool stuff hopefully coming up. We should be having a catch-up call with Broadpeak. Um, we do some cool things. And 
perhaps an interview with a startup as well whose name I can't remember. But yeah, that will either be next week or the following week. <laughs> yep, I'm going to be enjoying hopefully sunny Snowdonia. Uh, make sure that you have signed up for a trial for Faultline. Uh, it's you know available through our rethinkresearch.biz website. Four weeks free. And also Rafi and I are just putting the finishing touches on our multi-CDN forecast that comes out through our Rethink TV wing. And with that, I think I'm going to say goodbye now. Cheers then. See ya.